we just think yeah exactly but we just think Arthuriana maybe is sad because we're sad (laughs) (laughs) yeah possibly we hear about I don't know heroes but other stuff we're like sounds so fucking depressing (laughs) (laughs) hello and welcome to this is your life path a podcast where i sit down with tabletop game designers and we have a chat about all of the things that have influenced and inspired them away from the tabletop world i'm your host kayla i'm a game designer myself and i publish as ratwave game house i do games all about connection and alienation Games like Transgender Deathmatch Legend, a hex-crawling beat-em-up for two players where you play a trans wrestler smashing and slamming your way across city streets to get back money owed to you. Now to jump into the episode and introduce today's guest. My guest today is behind the hex-crawling through paintings game Hieronymus and the game about um, attempting necromancy to make it to the end of a 100-year NHS waiting list, Lichcraft. Um, the brain's face name behind Twelfthin's <laughs> Press, uh, Laurie O'Connell. Hello and welcome. Hey, thanks so much for having me. Uh, this is exciting. <laughs> welcome to my titular Ratwave game house, because <laughs> we're doing an in-person recording, which I've not done before. Um, do you want to, what are you working on at the moment as a maybe nice start off? Okay, well, first of all, you must know this is a very dangerous question to ask a game designer. (laughs) Um, them of 8,000 unfinished Google Docs. Maybe that's what I should start as the opening question to every episode, being like, how many open Google documents do you have? How many playtests are you halfway through? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) How many things have stalled at the point of, okay, I should play test that and then I'll get back to it later? Yeah, a lot. <laughs> um, no, so I have a few things on, on the on the bubble at the moment. Um, so Hieronymus' second edition uh, came out in digital form uh, recently. So now I'm just fixing the typos on that ah. uh, and sorting out a physical print, which is, as I think most people know, logistically both so much more complicated than you think it's going to be and also so much easier than everyone tells you it's going to be that's interesting i've never done a physical print so yeah. i'm sort of it's that's interesting to know that's i'm going to bank that away in my mind like okay slightly easier more nightmarish in places as well though yeah just giving yourself more time than you expect so that's exciting yeah And then I obviously have um, a few things. So I have an Arthurian kind of solo RPG, uh, which is my first solo game that I've actually Ah. gone through to the point of near completion. (laughs) Have you had other things get close? and? Yeah, well, I struggle to play solo games because sometimes I think um, I should maybe I should just call a friend uh, <laughs> and have a conversation with them. Um, but sometimes you find a game that you really want to write that the only way that it would work is a solo game. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, and this one is one of them because you play like this Arthurian wife who's kind of been like left alone in the castle whilst your husband goes off questing, and you have to kind of try not to get assassinated or attacked or you know get caught up in scandals whilst people around you are trying to sabotage you and it's it's sort of exploring that kind of like 
isolation of being a medieval woman. Yeah, I like read the um, preview pages you sent yeah. over. And I, I definitely agree. Like this is a game that probably could only work in this solo sense because if there are other people there, suddenly the entire equation of the experience is different. Yeah, like there's a there's definitely one that you could do where you're sort of uh, Arthurian wives committing heists, <laughs> um, which maybe I will do, um, or kind of like multiplayer scandal and intrigue but that's mm. not really like the the sense that I'm trying to like get to I'm trying to get to that like feeling of well when you're this like noble woman you're kind of surrounded by people but actually you're completely on your own and you don't have as much power as the men do you don't have as much like flexibility or freedom as maybe like women around other women around you do and so it's, it's supposed to be kind of very isolating mm. Yeah, like, yeah. those heists or courtly intrigue games would probably be good games, but they wouldn't be the same game as this, yeah. which needs that sort mm -hmm. of solo experience, that idea of, I guess, being, having lots of thoughts and almost being aware that sharing them is so dangerous. Yes, exactly. And um, the other side to it is, it's it's kind of, the, the reason why I wrote it is because there's some really funny bits of, famous Arthurian role-playing games where you are really supposed to play like the knights that go out questing and then when you get back you kind of roll to figure out what's happened to your wife <laughs> in your absence <laughs> and almost all of it is like whether or not they die in childbirth whilst you're away. And <laughs> Was that behind like because your character begins pregnant yes. specifically yeah was that a big motivation for for that element of the the solo game. Yeah, um, I think so. In Pendragon, uh, in one of the earlier editions, uh, they are bringing out another edition soon, and maybe they will have got rid of the 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 D one hundred miscarriage tables that they. Or have maybe it will now have hit points. <laughs> yeah, um, but it was kind of my answer to that. I don't particularly mind that in a game, but I didn't want to write something where you kind of explore what happens to be. Um, you know, the person that's left behind in that mm. situation. And also the reason why I had this character kind of like starting out pregnant is because I think like for women in that situation, that was probably like the most important moment of their life. Yeah. Um, and obviously when you're like a medieval, Arthurian is not even medieval. It's like, it draws on medieval themes, but it's set in like the dark ages, but it's kind of a fake dark ages, which mm. is more medieval than dark ages. Um, you know, women died in childbirth yeah. all the time. So when you start off in that situation, like everything you're doing, it's like, well, maybe my life ends in like eight months or nine months. Yeah, um, maybe there's this this adventurer has got away who is my husband, who I don't know that well, maybe, yeah. and maybe I I'm never seeing them again. Yeah. So I guess I just make the most out of it. <laughs> and I kind of, I mean, it's quite a dark sort of idea, but at the same time, it's just kind of a, a historical reality that it doesn't really do any use to ignore. Yeah. And it's something fun to, to play with, I think, now, looking back on it. And also, like, people did just die in the dark ages all the time, like men and women as well. I think death could come up on you a lot more quickly. But... Yeah. Yeah, I think, like... Which I guess the entire sort of rationale of often like, you know, wanting like lots of kids that being so informed by 
this weird context of like because a lot of them might die is mm. a thing that's kind of just strange and baffling to actually like hold in i guess our modern heads yeah a hair an air and like 18 spares because yeah. you didn't know how many of them would like kill the other ones or die before the age of five or whatever yeah i think um also in um a lot of the maybe that was like their real motivation at the time for like wanting to have a lot of kids also they just couldn't really not have kids they didn't really have any contraception yeah. um but like, was, like weird and gross yeah yeah exactly but like there's also the side of it which is um players like who are playing these arthurian games i see them i see people that play pendragon as like the map gamers of role playing games i think they really like playing crusader kings uh, i think that's that's like the player that i have in my head <laughs> um i think they really like like get the historical accuracy at how you can be accurate historically accurate in arthurian games is is, is another question yeah it's so, maybe a bit of a fool's errand in some yeah. sense or at least in, inherently grappling with a lot of yeah. contradictions yeah they like the historical accuracy but they also like the numbers to go up and that's why i think they really like the legacy and like lineage building aspects of it is that it's about like oh like okay maybe i'm completing this quest but also on the back burner you know my strategy game is going really well my numbers are going up and that's how i imagine these people like yeah these pendragon players like when the dm's like okay we'll roll a d20 to figure out if your wife uh, is pregnant and then we'll roll another one to see what happens to in the birth and then we're also going to roll another one to see if she's cheating on you um <laughs> was that the inspiration behind the the token counters with enemy or stuff like i need some numbers to go up for these characters yeah. these kind of players <laughs> yeah i think um it is partially that like yeah let's let's make the numbers go up let's try and tempt the uh, i don't know <laughs> if i'd be able to tempt a pendragon player into playing like mm. a a tarot-based solo sessions. game. <laughs> yeah, it was, I mean that's the thing. It could be really fun between work. sessions, and like there are whole um, there are whole sections of the of the game where you're just supposed to write letters, mm. like oh yeah, write to your husband or like write to your mother. And something that I imagine is that solo games are quite a good play aid. Yeah. So like, you can maybe see like the GM like playing this little game in the background and then like three sessions in being like oh your wife sent you a letter do you yeah. want to read it yeah that'd be a really interesting way of like uh doing a sort of inter intergame setup approach to one one story yeah and i think like because obviously when people when gms do that in games they're like oh you know your family back home has sent you a letter you can read it but it doesn't really matter because you're stuck on this quest now <laughs> and none of the other players in the game of you are going to be happy with you going back home to visit your family so even if you wanted to do something you can't it feels like a little bit of a trap yeah but then on the other hand in this it's very accurate to the genre of what these questing knights were actually doing all the time yeah and obviously uh maybe we're getting off track of your questions that you prepared but uh, maybe this could go a bit later, I don't know. But um, Arthurian, like Arthuriana and a lot of the Arthurian genre 
uh, the people that were writing that were really inspired by like the classics, like like the Iliad, the Odyssey, like classical Roman and Greek epic literature. And that's why things like the La Morte d'Arthur, they're so kind of epically structured. And that's also a big theme of, of epic, of like the Roman and Greek epics, which is that these warriors would go off and they fight a war for like 10 years or 20 years. And then they come home and find out, well, Odysseus comes home and finds out that his wife is being plagued by like thousands yeah. of suitors. I can um, really easily imagine like a Penelope hack of this yeah. game. Yeah, exactly. Like it's the same, it's a very similar concept because actually like, the genres are, are very closely interlinked and yeah then there's also a lot of scheming and plotting women as well in these um not so much in the well actually a lot in Arthurian fantasy because you have Morgana and you even have Guinevere who's off cheating on her husband mm. all the time and she's presented as this kind of like beautiful but like not virtuous at all <laughs> queen right uh, there's a lot of like scheming women who are like sort of just trying their best to survive and get what they want out of it, but they're completely alone. Mm. Um, if you read things like um, like Euripides, is that, is that who did it? No, Aeschylus, when he was writing about like, um, God damn it, I've forgotten the names of all of these characters. Um, but Agamemnon, like when he oh, goes yeah. off and he comes back with like this slave girl, Cassandra, yeah and his wife is just so angry and then she like murders them both in their beds yes yeah uh yeah clytemonestra that's her name that sounds right yes. i i i also i know the story and did at one point know his names and also yeah. lost them so i a hundred percent trust what you're yeah. saying whilst agamemnon's away fighting the trojan war clytemonestra has been like well this is my like kingdom now mm. like this is my city and she's like built up as this like cunning queen who's used all of her resources to like build up and become like quite a good governor by all accounts to the to her people, although she's obviously presented in a bad light because yeah. this is a male guy. Yeah, it was a male well, she's also, playwright. She's also Yeah. Also... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um and then everything comes shattering down in like one day because her husband comes back and has brought a love brought a lover. And it's like extreme humiliation and you know, and then she just kills them both and then Yeah, uh, so graphic murder, right, specifically. Yes. Yeah, and she brings them out and they're covered in blood, and then her daughter uh avenges her father by killing killing Clytemonestra. Yeah. And then there's a whole there's a whole thing. <laughs> um yeah, and then the, the Greek gods fight over it at the end as to who's guilty. And at one point, one of the gods makes an argument that Apollo makes the argument that Orestes, the son, can't be held responsible for killing Clytemonestra because actually women are only like vehicles for producing men. <laughs> so it's impossible to kill your mother because the concept of mother doesn't exist. That's, that's such a galaxy brain Apollo take. I know. <laughs> Apollo was really like like the Andrew Tate of, of his time. <laughs> like, listen, I gotta tell you this. Women don't exist. Women don't exist. They're just 50% yeah. of the way to producing another man. <laughs> yeah, that's, um, I can spin around my question, honestly, because mm -hmm. um, to honor and obey, 
I don't know if we said the name of the game. So oh. I was like, I should drop that in there quickly. Yeah. Um, that's not like the first like Arthurian game you've made because no. you also made Witch of the Westmoreland, mm. which was similarly tarot based, mm. but multiplayer which feels weird to use the phrase multiplayer when talking about rpgs because that's so usually the base but um Mm -hmm. and yeah i guess we've touched on it in a lot of places here talking about like the epic scale Mm -hmm. the drawing the sort of mingling of histories the medieval dark ages idea but i guess wrapping up on this for almost sort of like what is arthurian mean to you what like in terms Mm -hmm. of the games you explicitly have labeled as our fury. Mm-hmm. You're mentioning lots of touchstones like. Dim- I totally stumbled at that one. Uh, Demortly Alpha. I Alpha. Yeah, I know that I could visualize it in my head and I could not put it into words. It's all French, you know. Yeah. It's hard. But um, I, are you often thinking in terms of the reading you have done and the legend or is there other things that are sort of coming into your mind there so the first one that i wrote is um like the, the witch of the westmoreland in that again it, it's to do with um english folk music and scottish folk music there's a very famous folk song called mm. the witch of the westmoreland which was written by a guy called archie fisher you can go listen to it on spotify or wherever you get your music yeah i've heard um, that yeah it's very enjoyable but it deals with this like yeah this mysterious witch that kind of like lives in i think she lives in like the Ullswater area like she lives in the wilderness and she's got these miraculous powers to heal um and so again it kind of plays with this isolated mysterious woman that has powers that no one can comprehend which to be honest in all literature of this kind is such a common theme because the men that were writing it were like women women what are just they just breaking it at the idea yeah <laughs> what are they why why can they do the things that they do <laughs> um and that that's um that but that game explores more like um companionship mm. like you're escorting this like wounded knight to be healed and you again you play these characters that kind of set for you at the start of the game although you put your own twist on them but that one is much more like english folk horror mm. like this haunted forest like with strange things happening think like gawain and the, and the green knight yeah i was thinking it felt more like yeah. the distant tales of like knight errants yes um, or the i guess aftermath of these tales given the knight is wounded and injured but like yeah. it felt like in the smaller more folkloric space rather than in the like courtly epic um castles and such yeah exactly imagine like dev patel on his horse like going through <laughs> in the green night um and that that's uh, that's one side of arthuriana right which is that it's the one genre where if people said is there like a really english folk story that you can think of is there an, you would probably think of king arthur yeah um and that that's kind of the one side and then on the other side is that actually like there's nothing english about these stories at all yeah um and they were all like written well firstly they were written in french <laughs> um but they were all basically like english takes on kind of epic tales um 
So Arthuriana is like a really fun genre because it's kind of fake history. Yes. As well. Like... I guess in a way you can think of all of the sort of, you know, fake, weird, vaguely medieval with no specific settings you get in a lot of RPGs Mm. as like a successor to the kind of fake history in Arthuriana. Yeah, exactly. It's... It's fake, it's fake, so you don't, you can write a historical game without having to fear cor- correction yes. <laughs> from people who are more intelligent than you, <laughs> which is my greatest fear. Just living in dread of, of, a, of a spelling error or a date mistake being pointed out. Yes, exactly. Or an email saying, well, actually, King Alfred didn't burn the cakes. That's a myth. <laughs> you know. He was a brilliant baker. Yeah, disrespected his memory. <laughs> exactly. Um, so there's that side which is very appealing, I think, for any writer. Yes. Um, there's the other side of it being kind of like mysterious, like the magic in Arthuriana is always mysterious, and it's it's kind of the softest of soft magic, and so it can achieve these really interesting things. Um, and I think that has to do with the fact that, like, all of the witches in Arthurian stories are all women, and women were a mystery, so magic was kind of a mystery. Yeah, yeah, before men got their hands on magic. Yeah, and then suddenly it's all first-level spells, cantrips, <laughs> ninth-level spells. Yeah, it is. The idea of applying a level or something to what, like, Morgana or people do feels so uh, antithetical to... I don't know how I think of that magic. Yeah, exactly. Like, and that's appealing. And then also it deals with so much cool stuff. Like it's the dark ages. Like there's all of these questions. There's the, you've got Romans in Arthurian stories. You've got like the Saxons, you've got the Picts. Then you've got the clash between like Christianity and paganism. And like, none of these things are things that like anyone ever needs to explore out in detail, but it just like, there's so much like, it's a it's a period of transition which to me is much more interesting than like a maybe a period of history where we know a lot about but like not much is happening mm. not much is changing so yeah that's that's what appeals to me really about the genre yeah i was definitely thinking of like with the recent green knight film there's always this idea of like that being at the tail end of a story um, yeah. in terms of relationship to magic and stuff and mm. Yeah, definitely that period of transition idea you're talking about there. Yeah, where you have the church is kind of like coming in and then you have all of this. It's kind of seen now as like this loss of innocence almost as as a genre, which is really funny considering how horrible the Dark Ages probably (laughs) were to live through. Yeah, like, oh, those those glistening golden times of innocence. What were they called? Oh, yeah, the Dark Ages. <laughs> yeah. Um, but this whole idea that, like, once in this, like, back in, you know, back in the olden days of England, before, you know, you had all of this uh, capitalism nonsense <laughs> and feudalism nonsense, once upon a time you just had honourable knights yeah. and resourceful people who went out on magnificent quests and magic had not left the land. Yeah, when when men were knights and women were mysterious and strange. (laughs) Yes, exactly. (laughs) And to me, that's fun. That's a world that I probably would like to live in, (laughs) at least for a little bit. This maybe is a a lead-in back to um, some of my 
like my questions because I guess you're talking there a lot about like Arthuriana is like um, English folklore and then all of the ways in which that is contradictory itself but I suppose I was wondering like do you consider this I, this always sounds so double-edged to I guess say something do you consider there to be something specifically English about a lot of your work uh, do you feel like you know, where you've grown up has influenced a lot of your approaches mm. to different projects? Yeah, I mean, I think so. I, I think so. I don't know if I would say that my work is English. Yeah. But something that is incredibly important to me in game design is that it has a sense of setting and place. And that when you're playing whatever game it is that you have, it's rooted in, it's rooted really firmly in a setting. Mm. Um, and to me, like, so for example, my first game, Lichcraft, that is a game that like Americans, some of them really like it, but a lot of them do not really understand kind of uh, yeah. the sharpness of the satire. Mm. Are they like, oh, wow, that's what a ridiculous novel concept. It's like, this is, this is barely exaggeration. Yeah. Or they'll say like, oh, you know, this is a really, like, sad game and the point is that it's designed to, like, remind you about how tragic it is that it's really hard to get healthcare and how ridiculous the whole thing is, which is true, but it's also, like, a... It's like a British political cartoon. Like, that was my inspiration. I wanted the ah. kind of, like, really sharp-edged, slightly ridiculous satire that you would get in a good political cartoon. yeah. Like, just taking, like, yeah, I can imagine a political cartoon which is, like, a trans person becoming a lich to get to the end of a waiting, and it's just, like, wrapped up with a pithy punchline or something. Yeah, or, like, a really long queue for A&E, and then at the end, like, all of them are skeletons. Yeah, yeah. That, that feels entirely, like, I can visualise that in my mind. Yeah. And I think that, that that is a very British game, not only because it's set in England and it references like the Tories and mm. it references like, you know, Scotland and all of these places. Um, and it even has Theresa May as an option in a rollable <laughs> table, which maybe I need a second edition that I could just make a table of ex-prime ministers that are Yeah, zombies. I was going to say, like, making a second edition to upgrade it to ever the current prime minister would be feels like such a gamble on that staying accurate well, for even a couple of seconds. <laughs> now I feel like... I could just make a whole rollable table yeah. of them. Whereas before, there weren't enough. <laughs> so... Yeah, like, that's exciting. But also, I feel like it's one of the things that maybe I couldn't write today because now it is impossible to do satire of UK politics. Yeah, yeah. And you can still try, but it never comes off as, as funny because it's kind of more ridiculous than... Yeah, it feels... And maybe now it feels like um, punching a wall. Yeah. <laughs> you're like, yeah, maybe that seems... Like, yeah, you, you really gave it to that wall. But yeah. your hand is now broken. Yeah. Yeah. But the thing is, I think because of the, like, sense of humour and because in this world that's created, like, okay, there's a lot of, like, shitty jokes which kick at, like, various silly little bits of, like, British um, culture that we don't realise is stupid until someone makes a joke about it. Yeah. Um, but, like... There's something, um, 
there's also something that's like quite nice in there which is that ultimately like the whole idea of the game is that you do become a lich yes and then you know you get a big boss fight where you can fight jk rowling (laughs) please don't sue me like someone of the kind that could be jk rowling yes famous authors could be any uh, undead evil turf yes exactly um or you can fight the pope if you want or the archbishop of canterbury (laughs) or you know whoever you want and then you kind of get your you ascend to a being of ultimate power and then you kind of get what you want and i think a lot of people kind of appreciate that Mm. (laughs) so actually it's optimistic in a really depressing pessimistic way yeah it feels like a sort of spiteful optimism anytime i used to go to the gic on the bus i would listen to the theme music of Mm -hmm. the wrestler eddie guerrero whose whole thing was that he lied cheated and and stole like he would and just brag about that and his music was just i lie i cheat i steal and that's what i'd listen to when i was on the way to the gic always and because it was this yeah, I'm doing this and I'm full of hate while I'm doing yeah, it. Yeah, exactly. And again, that sort of like spiteful, like triple-edged optimism, I think that is British humour. Mm. So if I would say something is a is an English or a British game, I would say it's probably that one. As much as it feels w- weird to... Yeah. <laughs> that makes sense. So we're recording this in London right now. Did you grow up in London or did you move here at some point? So I actually was born in London um i was born in chelsea you know what's great about recording this in london is that there's a million sirens going off outside yeah, right I now i live in a high street on a high street not in a high street that was, that's ridiculous um i live so... under a high street <laughs> i live i live in the state of high street <laughs> uh yeah sorry about that i'll try and rip them out or whatever but uh it's some may sneak through i think it's kind of funny that you said we're recording in london right now and then suddenly the sirens yeah, started was, going up was, that's just the announcement of when it's <laughs> yeah. going down if you mention the l word too loudly they come <laughs> um but then i moved out to cambridge um oh. with my family when i was very young so that's really where i grew up um in kind of like the countryside Wait, wait, what right. age were you when you moved out? Like, did you, were you old enough, I guess, that you had a sense that you'd moved? Is yes. sort of what I'm asking, right? Yeah, yeah, I still remember, like, the like living in London, but I was never really old enough to, like, properly live in it. Mm. Like, I was not old enough to get on the tube on my own, for example, which I assume you can do that at, like, age 10. I don't really know how children work. This is a weird thing this is maybe a side note so maybe i'll cut this entire section out but i've noticed this is like as a teacher as i'm like a lot of children who live in london just don't really get the tube or move around london Mm. much um i noticed it because i'm a teacher i realized i didn't give that context before saying i've been observing yeah i wanted to to give the context that is because of conversations i've had with them in a work capacity i'm always on the tube thinking God damn, where are the children? <laughs> where were the unaccompanied children? <laughs> um, yeah, but then, so when did you move back? Um, so just at the end of the pandemic. Oh, wow, right. So I was working in Cambridge. So I, I, I grew up there. I went to school there. I went to university there. Ah. Uh, and then I got my first job there. <laughs> So 
very parochial little life I mm. had. What's Cambridge like? Um, maybe this is where I get my love of a, a sense of place from, because it's what it's 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 a city that really has its own identity, mm. which is that it's the most unequal city in the UK. <laughs> Um, so you've got this extreme kind of like feudal, almost con like control and the half of the city centre is just owned by all of the colleges. Mm. And so you can walk around it and feel like it's a lot smaller than it actually is because there's so much land that's just completely locked off. Um, and a lot of people who are, there's, there's this extreme division between the two great factions of town and gown. So, who are, what is that like then to have grown up in Cambridge and gone to university there? Did you, because we're essentially you double cross town. Yes, I know. I felt as such a traitor. <laughs> well, it was interesting, you know, because when you go to Cambridge University, that is also a place which is such an ivory tower, mm. you know, and you have people have such a sense of their own, like, even if you don't come from privilege, which I, to be honest, like uh, most Cambridge students do come from a place of privilege. I'm shocked. Um, <laughs> but even if you don't, you can be very overwhelmed by like suddenly and you're sitting in these like huge halls with portraits everywhere and like chandeliers and your dinner is getting served to you. And there's a, you know, there's a servant that comes into your room every morning to empty the bins. Oh, this is, this is freaking me out. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> so can you imagine like that kind of environment it's so like secluded and alien yeah um and yet everyone just kind of like accepts it as like just this is the way that things are yeah i suppose if you get immersed yeah. in a place it's hard to i don't know it sometimes just feels weird to, it, i think your brain adapts quickly in strange ways yeah and some people adapt and some people don't and have yeah. out, out about it for like the whole of their time at cambridge um but yeah, like I remember uh, very distinctly that some of my friends were like serving at, at the colleges. And then when, like, because this is what a lot of us did as like part-time jobs is that oh. we would be silver service servers, which is such a weird thing to have as a common part-time job for a teen. Yeah, that's, um, that is a strange. But you need them because there's so many like formal dinners yeah. that go on which is really weird. Um, and I remember sitting there and then having some, having my meal served to me, uh, sitting there in a suit, having my meal served to me by someone who I went to school with. Oh. And just like suddenly realizing how fucking weird this university is, or how weird this place is. Yeah, that's, that's gonna fuck with your head. Yeah. But that makes sense as like an environment that is also in its own place, like so distinctly like, a sense of place I feel it's like it's, itself yeah 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 you're not mistaking that for other places um it is it's not saying where it's like ah, oh, yes this is I don't imagine people listening to this who didn't go to came to like I didn't know thinking oh yeah this is relatable this is what all schools mm. or universities are like it's mm. so itself yeah and I to the extent that uh when you matriculate which is what is like joining the university you sign a book like I don't know what I don't know what the normal word for matriculation is I'm sorry is it enrollment enroll yeah when you oh enroll. right right okay right. um you go to this dinner afterwards <laughs> and the 
leader of the college uh, gives a speech and he stood up and he said, you know, no matter where you've been before, you belong here. You're part of this uh, family now. You're part of oh, this special... The, the, it's well, a family thing. You're part of this special place where generations before you have worked incredibly hard to get here. And, you know, basically just saying, like, you you belong here. You're, you're part of us now. And it's... Yeah, I think... Um, that definitely adds to my feeling <laughs> of a sense of like places have their own character and sometimes it's a bit creepy. And that's why one of my biggest pet peeves is fa in fantasy is when people just have towns that just called the town, the market, the city, as though they don't have any character of themselves. And every place that you go to is, is the, kind of the same, but just with slightly different people in it. Yeah, I feel like all of your work that I've read does so often have such a sense of place either mm. in terms of drawing on outside knowledge or often explain things like with Hieronymus what, mm. what struck me is like obviously because we're crawling through these landscapes which are so visual and stuff that's obviously creating such a sense there but I feel like in the introduction to the book you give such useful context for the middle ages and like yeah just really keying the play the paintings into a sense of time and place mm. um yes <laughs> because it's really about hieronymus is really not well it's two things firstly i want my games to kind of like invite people that don't necessarily play rpgs to play it play them because like the, the idea is interesting to them, which is why I'll never sell someone an RPG on the basis of, I have this really new interesting system that you can do <laughs> everything in. Cause I actually want to kind of tempt people that maybe aren't game players themselves. Yeah. So people tell me that they like give Lichcraft to their like trans nephews or nieces for Christmas. Which makes total sense. Yeah. Cause that's, that's got such a specific thing. And I can imagine that yeah. appealing to so many trans people I know who have mm. never even really heard of RPGs. Yeah. But with Hieronymus, mm. it's the same. I wanted to, like, tempt people by, like, saying, okay, you're really interested in this artist. He's a really fascinating guy who, in terms of, like, iconic artists from Europe, is probably up there in, like, the top ten. Um, but then... Also, this is a new and interesting way of looking at art. So that's the one side. But the other side is that it's not really just about like, you know, adventuring through some like interesting uh, pieces of art. It's kind of about the death agony of feudalism uh, <laughs> and the collapse of feudalism. And, you know, you're these medieval archetypes, like you're like living this like very stilted life where every you're kind of performing your role doing what you should be and then suddenly the whole world is torn apart is is torn asunder and you're kind of like living through that collapse and chaos which is exactly what was happening at the time that Hieronymus Bosch was painting with things like the black death um with kind of the slow collapse of the feudal order and the slow like rise of capitalism basically or at least absolutism so not to get too sidetracked <laughs> with history but that's the idea it's like and I think 
because we today are living through like the collapse of capitalism mm -hmm. and the, this total disaster scenario every time you look out of the window where the world feels like it's being torn apart it was quite an easy game to write because the feelings that I wanted to get or like the ideas that I wanted to maybe not like smash people on the head with but put in their mind was are like ideas that people have already yeah and it does feel like it's introduced that context almost quite uh gently to mm. maybe use a different one it doesn't feel like you're coming out and saying like this is what the game is about think mm. about this while you're playing think about it in the world it feels like you giving um just this great rich backstory to the context of Hieronymus Bosch's mm. life and it feels it feels like in a way where the book and you through the book are excited to share this knowledge and mm. I think that just puts people in a frame of mind of being just very open to mm. learning and thinking sort of um like ha like having a new kind of engagement with the paintings themselves and the themes of the work yeah oh, I appreciate that thank you for the compliment <laughs> yeah I think I also just like Hieronymus Bosch is this person that maybe when because he's famous for these like really weird scenes the father of like the surreal right like in a certain sense but and people look at his work and they're like haha look at that funny little crab guy with the hat you know <laughs> or like look at this like weird hellscape I don't really understand it but when you think about what he himself was doing, which was he was going into churches and taking their money to paint images that included like like monks and nuns, like stealing money from like a dead man, like forcing them to sign over to the church in the in their wills, or like, you know, corrupt like kings and noblemen and and his whole kind of like theft and corruption and, and skepticism and actually he was very radical mm. and it really surprises me that he survived like doing all of these paintings <laughs> um because I think his work was just so like out there and interesting that the church didn't really know what to think about it so they also took that like oh look you've drawn a lot of demons and devils or that will really terrify our flock perfect yeah it's um, like, oh, I don't know what all of this money business is about but well, that crab makes me happy to look at. Put it in the wall. <laughs> yeah. And I didn't really realise that he was, like, making a point about them as well. And he wasn't just, like, trying to terrify people with visions of hell. Um, and I think that that's really fun because he was being, yeah, he was being quite revolutionary. Um, and he managed to get away with it. <laughs> I'm not still not sure how. Yeah. Something we can all, I guess, aspire to, yeah. getting away with it. Yeah, we all love someone that, um, you know, mocks the powerful mm. and somehow manages to pull off a heist <laughs> where they don't get killed. Yeah, know? that's, that's, well. Um, so what did, what did you study at university? Like, what did you, I guess leading into a bigger question, what did you want to be when you grew up? Oh, so when I went to uni, I wanted to do politics and ah. it was because I had this illusion if I studied politics at university, I would understand a little bit more about how to, you know, change the world. Right. And then I realized within like a few weeks of studying politics, that if I wanted to understand like how to make the world a better place, I would just do better to just read some marks. Yeah. And <laughs> 
I didn't need any of the, you know, you know, to be lectured about Thomas Hobbes for hours on end. Yeah. Um, so then I swapped to archaeology. Uh-huh. And when I was um, really happy with that, because I had wanted to be like an archaeologist when I was little and I'd like uh-huh. shelved it away. And I have this like really big fascinate. I love to just go to look at old things and to, un- and, and to understand a little bit more about them. I really always loved history and I love like civ- like civilizations that have like fallen and we're trying to figure out what they used to be like. Um so yeah, then I, I, I did that and I was much happier. That's doing that's that. that's really great. Yeah. And yeah, I think thinking about what I was saying with your Wakabrin context, it does maybe sometimes feel like you're approaching the settings you're describing either real or imagined, like someone unearthing this curio from the ground. Yeah, exactly. Like a an anthropological approach almost, yeah. where you're trying to like dig into like what made this society behave in the way that it, that it did what makes these people behave in the way that they do what's like special or unique about this society um which to me is so much more interesting than like how many shops are there in this town yeah um and I think, yeah, I, I, I love that. I was an archaeologist for a while after graduating. Oh. I worked in, like, commercial projects like the A14. Okay. Um, which was fun, but there was a lot of mud involved. <laughs> do you want to talk about what you do now as a day job? Um, I mean, I can. Um, I actually work for a socialist organisation. Um, so... Uh, Maybe I won't name it. <laughs> sure, it's um, your call. Because, well, it's an organisation called Socialist Appeal. Um, but obviously what I do when I'm making games is not connected yeah, to that at all. Yeah, of course, absolutely. Um, but yeah, I work, I work full-time for that now. And, and really, to me, I, I, it's really a privilege to be able to be like a full-time Marxist, <laughs> a full-time revolutionary. Because I think that's what we need at the moment. Like, we need people who are dedicated to actually changing society not just trying to like tolerate it and survive it Mm. do you think spending I guess that amount of time in Mm. a day job thinking about society yeah do you think like you end up bringing a lot of those thoughts and feelings into your game work or do you view it almost as like well switching off or, or or in a different mode sense no, I think all of my games are quite political. Yeah. Um, not I don't like to slam people over the head with politics. I just think, well, maybe not not in my games. I do <laughs> when I'm just having a conversation. Not with if you're someone. being paid per hour. Yeah. Um, but yeah, like I think I, I, I try and think a lot about um the world as it is, I guess, and I end up like doing a lot of research which some of it comes through when I write games. A lot of what I write games also just comes from like the kind of music that I like, the kind of um, stuff that I'm reading at the moment. But I think also maybe people don't realize when they're talking to game designers or when they're like following the work of a game designer that they really like, that it's not our day job. Unless yeah. you're very lucky, it's not our day job. And therefore like the things that we do and the things that we write I write maybe in like the 20 minutes between when I like get home and when I just go to sleep. (laughs) Um, And uh, 
Therefore, when, you know, I get an email being like, when are you going to send my book out? I'm like, <laughs> when I have an evening off. Yeah, when I'm not scraping through the 20 minutes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so to write, to write something, I have to really want to write it. And mm. I have to really feel inspired in that moment because so much of my time and energy goes on. Something else that I really care about probably more than I care about RPGs. Yeah, that's fair. Um, yeah, I'm also lucky enough to like, really like my job yeah that probably makes mm-hmm. i think you know having been in situations where i've been trying to write while being drained from jobs i hate it i can yeah. understand the, the difference there when that's not when yeah. when there is not hate <laughs> yeah when i'm sitting at work my mind's not wandering to all of the things that i want to write mm. um when i write it it, it's because something has kind of like come to me and I think that makes it a lot more focused whereas I think when I've been like when I was working as an archaeologist for example and I was just doing this task that like you know I was just digging holes <laughs> I mean I, obviously it was interesting to see what would be at the bottom of the holes but a lot of it is really truly is just digging holes <laughs> like you had all the time in the world for your mind to kind of like wander mm. and to take you down to different places and Sometimes that would just mean I would just end up second-guessing myself. Yeah, I think I understand that. I guess circling back to to jokes we were making earlier about um, the realm of unfinished work in progress is, <laughs> um, do you find that, like, when you lose, like, uh, I guess you find that some of those are because you've been partway for a project, been enjoying it, and then for whatever reason just, like, lose that spark or do you find you're someone who doesn't force yourself to finish things if that passion is not still like flowing or connecting yeah exactly which is why I always try to like when I do kickstarters or anything I always try and have the game finished beforehand because if if I'm not feeling it I don't want to write it then I'm just going to move on to, to something else yeah I, I, I don't know if I could... I've never ran a Kickstarter. I don't know if I could trust myself to run one for something I don't have, like, mm. the very least the text of. I'm very easily distractible. Yeah. Um, so I, I, I do tend to, like, run between multiple projects. And there are some that I would really like to return to uh, in the future. But, like, it's also to do with the headspace that you're in when you're writing, like, Maybe at the moment, I don't really want to write my Battle Royale simulator, no matter how good I know it's going to be. <laughs> that <laughs> um, makes sense. But at the moment, I'm much more interested in... Okay, this is going to sound depressing, but it's not. <laughs> I'm much more interested in this theme of like loneliness and like relationships that aren't really working or like you know survival in circumstances that like are not the best but are also like not out of the ordinary like with a something like I was working on a, a death game game a while ago where like you would be playing all of these characters catapulted into a death game and I just start thought like at the end like oh this just feels really manufactured it doesn't feel that like rooted yes that makes sense um I'm much more interested in something that feels a little bit more rooted in a time period or a set of relationships that are like more conceivable to me 
Yeah, that makes sense. I under I realize how much I say that makes sense yeah. in this recording. <laughs> um, no, but I think I understand what you mean in terms of like that just being a more interesting connection and something that I guess can give you the motivation and energy to write because it feels more compelling in I guess yeah. all sort of senses of that word. And sometimes I do just hit a wall because I can't find the right mechanic. Because mm. I'm not a Brit. I'm not someone that has a brain for inventing new mechanics or like new ways of playing things. Sometimes I can. Sometimes I can come up with something, but a lot of the times my games they just like start off as hacks of something else, and then they just go from there. And then sometimes it's kind of like the ship of Theseus where like if you replace enough mechanics or rules then when does it just become your own game and not a hack yeah I remember um when I because I'd heard about Lichcraft Mm. um before I first read it and I think then when I was first read it I was surprised to learn to I guess see the the parts of the pre of the ship of Forged in the Dark stuff yeah Yeah, a lot of my so Hieronymus also is mm. forged in the dark or was. I actually took it I took it off labeling it as forged in the dark now with the second edition because I just don't think that I think it has like maybe the DNA. Yeah. But I just think it's evolved like a lot further. But there's something there's something about that kind of like you roll a dice pool like idea that just to me I fixated on as like the most easy and fun way <laughs> to like do a mechanic without too much extra work. That makes sense. I think yeah. there was a game, there's a game I have in development still, and maybe it will one day be finished or maybe mm. it won't. But I remember when I was writing a credit section of it, because it's something I finished writing, but I'm on like the third redraft of or whatever yeah. to find it. But I was like, oh, there's enough in the dark or pbta stuff here that i've like i feel like i'll mention this in the credits but i probably wouldn't refer to this as that because Mm. even though it's got that dna i feel if someone picked up this game expecting their idea of a forged in the dark or Mm. pbta game they'd there'd be a disconnect i think there yeah especially so lichcraft like oh how do the mechanics in lichcraft work it was a while since (laughs) i wrote the game (laughs) um what it ha- what it keeps is rolling the dice pool and like success, success with a consequence. Yeah, no success. Um, but it doesn't keep pretty much anything else. Yeah. Um, like it, where your dice come mm. from is not really skills. Well, they are, but you only have three of them. And then the when you fail, the consequence is that your skills go down. So it's like a, a skill drain thing. Yeah. Um, which I don't know where I got it from. I'm sure I didn't come up with that myself because it seems too clever. I feel like is it? I feel like that's something in dungeon stuff sometimes. But yeah. I'm not a big. I don't know much about dungeons. Maybe it's like an OSR thing. That feels like it could be right. Yeah. Um, but I I also have no idea ultimately. Yeah, I know. In like Call of Cthulhu, you have like a luck score that goes down. I think. Yeah, I'm sure. I, I'm sure I pinched it from somewhere. Somewhere, yeah. It yeah. feels like one of those ideas that it's just so in the in the ether, rather than yeah being even attributable to one thing. Yeah, I think Grant Howitt does a lot of like one page games with stats that go down because uh, it's a really easy way to 
like if you don't have that much space to put rules which is something I'm very passionate about not having too many rules because I'm really a lazy mechanics writer <laughs> not no I don't have like an ideological crusade against rules just for me I'm too lazy <laughs> um, like, I don't want to add this many I don't want to write lists the more lists I write the more I have to play test yeah <laughs> <laughs> um <laughs> But if you don't want too many rules, I think it's an easy way to not have to have like an HP yeah, stat. Yeah, that's true. If you just have your other stats go down. And I think it, 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 adds, it, it has a like big weird knock-on effect for also just, I guess, um, only requiring a very quick explanation. Yeah, exactly. Um, and yeah, like so that, so that I would never attribute as Forge in the Dark. Hieronymus, it has a little bit more because it makes use of like clocks. It makes use of like well, it has position and effect, but it actually only has effect, oh, not position. Right. Um, it has devil, devil's bargains. Yeah. Which I thought I really could not include in a game. Thematically. Yeah. <laughs> um, but other than that, like, it doesn't have the play structure. It doesn't have the same kind of level of playbooks. Um, it's missing more than it's kept. I think at this point, it's its own game. Yeah with some of that DNA in a sort of yeah. mutant hybrid form. Yeah. In Scaled Back, it's like I, I truly found the SRD for Blades in the Dark and then deleted 90% of it. Yeah. Then... <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. So we, you were talking, I guess, with influences briefly. You mm. mentioned, like, things you're reading. What mm. is... I guess I, I have sort of two questions mm. here. Um... One is, I guess, just thinking about, like, oh, what things have you read that have influenced specific mm. things? But I guess I was also wondering, have you ever noticed what things you've read that have maybe just influenced your overall style of writing? Mm. Or, like, like, your prose and construction of that? Yeah, because I think when I wrote Lichcraft, I wasn't reading very much. Okay. And so I kind of pulled that out of just, like... Oh, I don't really know how to how to explain it. I pulled it out of basically reading the news, right? Right. And it's, yeah. And it's a like I said, it's it's got that political cartoon kind of edge to it. It's that like satire. Um, it's not very literary, and I wouldn't say that the writing is particularly good. Like in like, not in terms of the concept. I think the concept's great. I think the execution's great, but there's not a lot of like text in there. Right. Um. And the text that's in there is like very explanatory. It's not like anything to write home about because I wasn't reading that much at the time and I wasn't trying to pull, I wasn't trying to make a game that was like super elegantly written. I was trying to make a game that got the point across. Right, yeah. Um, but since I've, and like articles and art criticism and literary criticism, I think really inspires me. Um, when I wrote Hieronymus, it was because I read an article um, about Hieronymus Bosch, uh, which is, is cited in, in the book. Uh, it's called Hieronymus Bosch and the, the Art of the Death Agony of Feudalism or something like that. Yes. Does, does the game begin with a quote from that yes, article? Yes, it does. Um, and it's actually written by someone in, in my organisation. It's like oh, a political cool. piece. Um, kind of talking about why this artist was such a revolutionary and you know what the middle ages were like at the time and it really inspired me I thought like you know we should include 
some stuff about, I, I want to do something about this. Like, this is really interesting to me. Now with my more recent stuff, I think I'm reading more novels okay. and things that are more story oriented. I've figured out that the way for me to improve my memory is just to like get off TikTok and start reading books because <laughs> my focus is so bad. Yes, they are two very far apart areas in terms of focus. Yeah. I should probably also do the same. Yeah, uh, since I started doing that, I've been much more inspired by stuff that has more of a narrative, maybe more of a story to it. Um so I've been writing more adventures, like I'm writing adventures for Lancer, um, because I think it's a very underserved game that has a lot of players, but not very many adventure modules. Yeah, your module Stolen Crown. Yeah. Right? Yes. Yeah, and that uh, ended up being, I mean, I think it opened the floodgates a little bit of people writing. That's exciting. Stuff. Enough gone effect. Yeah, which is... I'm not saying that massive press owes me anything, but what I am saying, what I am saying, okay, is that I made this adventure. It was a massive success and people really enjoyed it. And suddenly massive press is out commissioning different adventures from other people. And they never asked me, even though I wrote like the adventure. (laughs) They never answer module. Well, no, they, I mean, yeah. Like, the first, like, third-party Lancer yeah. module that went on Kickstarter. Uh, I wrote that, and they didn't even email me. So, <laughs> Massive Press, if you're listening... Pull your head out. You have my email address. I know, it's on my website. You can find it. <laughs> um, I'm, not, I'm not that bitter about it. I just thought it was, <laughs> I just thought it was funny. No, no, I agree. That makes sense. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah, so do you feel like... I guess also, like, yeah, do you approach, because you've said you started writing more adventures, do you Mm. feel you approach the writing of adventures uh, differently from the uh, writing of self-contained games like Lichcraft or Hieronymus? Yes, and the reason why is that, mm, okay, how do I put it? It's not just respecting a genre or, like, a historical period. You're also trying to get into the psychology of the writers of the original game and figure out like what they had in mind and also the players of the game like the play base of the game what do they like what do they want to see more of um and you kind of have to respect the source material as well and i mean i have i have a lot of respect for people that write kind of like system neutral adventures but i think for me, the strength of writing for a pre-existing system that has its own kind of style and its own kind of pre-existing player base is that you're writing for the crowds. You're not just writing for yourself and whoever might be interested. Yeah, I guess thinking about that sense, talking about that strong sense of setting that is maybe easier to do when you are keying something into a world or at least vibe like a very strong vibe like i wrote an adventure for the first time ever like i was gonna say this year but i think actually in like i wrote it a bit before christmas and then mostly in the christmas to new year gap um but i wrote an adventure for orbital blues and i both felt yes this is a very big change to my own writing style 
but also yeah it did feel so much about like keying into something on a level both mm. the base game itself and then also i guess other influences i was trying to ape or convey and stuff in the game yeah which to me is why and this is not a judgment on the quality of like adventures that are written for a specific system versus adventures that are completely system neutral oh yeah no of course because i mean for example like a lot of system neutral adventures will be explicitly for like osr stuff mm. right and that's because they they know what you know they know what those kinds of games are kind of about so you can write for all of them at once yeah and there's enough of those games where it's like the base what are you doing in this game is the same that it makes sense yeah. that that can go over lots of them yeah but i like to really root what i'm writing for like what i'm writing in yeah like in a niche whether it's like a specific kind of mechanics that i really want to show off um so with lancer for example there's a whole lot of, of mechs and like i want to include like mechs as a part of the adventure like not just in a jarring combat related way mm. but like as an interesting like question about this relationship between humans and technology. Lancer players are obsessed with that kind of stuff. Lancer players are also very political, so I do want to include something that's political. Um they like big things. I'm not <laughs> I'm not joking. That seems really weird, but they really like when you think of like playing a mech game, you don't think you're gonna be like fighting little rats, do you? You think no. oh giant Jaeger battle. <laughs> So include I, some big monsters, include some big creatures. Include something mech-worthy. Yeah, exactly. And that, that to me, it, it makes it easier for me to write and it means I, I value like what I'm producing a little bit more because I know who it's for. Yeah, of course. Like, you're... I was about to... Yeah, yeah, I guess you're keying into an audience needs. I was about to say that, but I was accidentally going to use the word jump on, and I'm like, no, that sounds that sounds like it's got a different energy than what I want, <laughs> so I'll go keying in. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's really interesting. Um, but well, I didn't answer the question about, oh, about what I was actually yeah. reading. Um, I, started, I started reading a lot of like more modern fantasy um i read a very good haunted house horror called tell me i'm worthless which all of the rpg oh, designers yes. are reading at the moment um i would say i'm probably not gonna write a game based on it because it's <laughs> too horrifying but yeah there's something about like um yeah there's something about novels and locations that are really appealing to me at the moment um like haunted houses there's this there's this very popular book called Babel at the moment that I finally picked up because I wanted to see what all the hype was about. Um, I was trying to tell if I could remember that. Yeah, I don't know if I do. it's um it's by this this writer R. F. Kuang who's like oh, a, no yeah so I'm not yeah, familiar with that. It's like a Chinese writer. It's set in Oxford University. Oh. Um, but what if? silver was actually magic and it's all kind of like a metaphor for imperialism oh right um it's it's, a re it's really good and again like i'm getting a lot more want to like tell specific stories rather than just kind of like cast people adrift yeah a little bit no that makes a lot of sense then that sounds very 
interesting in terms of things. Have you are you familiar with uh, Deep Wheel Arcadia? No. It's like a uh, sci-fi novel in verse, which is written in like um, an Orkney dialect with like translations Ooh. underneath. I just thought that's a book I was partway through reading, and then I left the book at a cinema and people didn't hand it into Lost and Found, they just stole it and I had to buy it again and I've not started reading it again since that happened. This was a roundabout way of saying like, oh, maybe check that out, you might like that. <laughs> I think I would, I might put it on my list. Yeah, go yeah. for it. It's, it was, I was really enjoying it and it has been something I've been meaning to pick back up, now I have a copy again. So you, you also talked about music. I was wondering, does like music play much of a part of your process while while writing? Do you listen to music while writing or can you, I know some people just can't do that. I do. Um, or I listen to like a podcast that I will pick, <laughs> I will remember about two words of whatever was said whilst I'm like writing or doing layout. But yeah, like The Witch of the Westmoreland was very inspired by music. Oh yes, of course. Um, the titular song. Yeah. And then... This one, like I was saying right at the start, like To Honour on a Bay, that's much more literary inspired. That's much more like, yeah, like I said, like all of these like literary tropes of like the the isolated woman, mysterious, mysterious isolated woman that's skilled, but still like half of the time something still goes really badly for her. Yeah. Like that kind of stuff. That's the vibe I'm bringing to this year. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah that, is, that is a vibe, isn't it? <laughs> I just, I want to be mysterious enough that people are like, maybe magic. Yeah, maybe. I live in a city, though. I feel like you can't really do that in a city. Mm, I mean, you can only try. Yeah, yeah. Well, the worst that can happen is I'll fail. Isn't there a whole, like, urban fantasy genre? Yeah. Uh, yeah, I, I kind of want to become, like, like, some kind of, like, hermit witch. Mm. but in a flat on a high street. <laughs> yeah. And it's like, sometimes the high street just becomes empty for no reason. <laughs> and that's when you go to the shops. Yeah. And then everyone can return to the high street to do their shopping, like not really realising why they had to go away for a little bit. Yeah, it's been really foggy here the last couple of days, like like thick fog that you could actually see. And I... I'm taking responsibility for it. Yeah, very good. <laughs> Case closed. But yeah, no the, further questions. Sure, and those mysterious. So you said that was more literary. Um, I guess so less touched into sort of like Arthurian ballads and stuff then. Yeah, and then I have a one that I'm working on, which is more musical inspired because it's very inspired by like My Chemical Romance. Sick, awesome. Which, um, and also the comics, um, which is set. Okay. Hear me out on this one. Okay. Um, you know the, the, the city that Saudi Arabia is building in the desert? That's the like wall. A, the line. The line. Yeah, it's yeah, not yeah, the line. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's the line, not the wall. Sorry, yeah. It's set in like a, a knockoff version of the line. Oh, so I, the line X battery city. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> because I just think the line is just like the best cyberpunk setting that anyone could ever have come up with. Yeah. And they're building it. <laughs> Yeah, that makes sense. So, like, that weird... So, I assume Danger Day specifically, the yeah. vibe you're bringing. That's really cool. Yeah, exactly. And also, you play, like, uh, some of the characters that you can play are kind of, like, versions of uh, characters in the comics. Right, yes. Like, 
you start off with these androids, right? Who one of them is dying. And then you can play like an ex-enforcer who's secretly trans. That one's not from the comics. I came up with that one. So can you play Grant Morrison in this game? (laughs) (laughs) I wish. (laughs) But um, yeah, the whole idea is like, as your characters die, you pick up new ones. That's cool. And they get, they bring in new abilities. There's one character that you can play where like, if you pick them up as the player, because your character has died or given up, then you get control of all the music for the game. Ooh, so it's a game that integrates music yeah, as well. Exactly. And I, I, I think that that should if I can ever finish it, it should be <laughs> it should be fun. Um I want to see if I can get someone to like do some little cartoons for it as well. That'd be awesome. But yeah. I don't want to commission it until I've actually finished writing it. Because... That makes sense. You don't want to be like the, oh, why do I have all of these swords, but it's about art for a book you don't have finished. I think um, if I could give anyone a game design tip, um, commissioning art for a game or hiring a layout person or anything like that before the game is actually written is the death knell of the game. Because once you've received the art, you'll be like, oh, great, well, that's done. <laughs> and, then, and then you'll never finish writing it. That makes sense. So has this happened to you? Do you have anything yeah. in... Um... So is the commissioned art in the room with us right now? <laughs> <laughs> so have you got some, yeah, ghostly projects, I suppose? That... I have some, like, ash cans that I got covers for. Okay. And now because i have a cover for them like they're they're just never making it out of ash can (laughs) or at least not for a while i think they will eventually that makes sense talking about art and the 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 dangers of um of asking for art before finishing i was wondering hieronymus obviously so coolly integrates the paintings like Mm -hmm that's that's not just art in a sort of illustrative purpose like it is very like engaging with the art is part of the game part of the individual crawls um and then you have worked commissioning artists um lichcraft obviously has very beautiful art throughout and then i know in other projects you've used things that have been licensed under cc or public domain or stuff what is your what do you think is the best approach you've learned for you in terms of being inspired by visual art in the process without, I guess, running into those risks of... um... Yeah, I think when I have in my head, like, what the game I want to write is, from the beginning, I usually have an artist in mind. Um, There's someone that I really want to work with for another Lancer adventure that I'm writing, for example, and I already know I'm going to ask him to do it. Um, so I know I hold in my mind like what the like what 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 I might want like what I might want the game to look like, but you, but it, that's not just all it is about because, again, like my sense that when you write an RPG, you need to really connect to the genre, or you really need to connect to a place. Uh, a lot of that means going to a lot of other sources. So when you're writing an Arthurian game. Um, you could read like the classical sources, but you should also look at the art that comes out of like the pre-Raphaelites were absolutely obsessed with like Arthuriana and also just like medieval women in general and Roman and Greek women. So I'm really inspired by pre-Raphaelite art for that game in particular. And you can see, I mean, you've seen in the files that I sent you that like yeah. it pulls on a lot of paintings by people like Waterhouse 
or Rossetti. Um, so yeah, really beautiful cover and title pages that are very efficiently mood setting. Like like oh uh, like turning onto the top page full of art feels like oh yes yeah, so it feels like page turner in all of the sense of like mm-hmm. oh yes like this is a change here. Yeah, and I think um I really liked that. Like I I just hit on pre-Raphaelite art as being a big source of inspiration because I was googling like oh like Arthurian women because I wanted to find a public domain cover because it's a little pet project that I don't want to necessarily commission anyone for um and then I just found all of this like amazing art um and also the pre-Raphaelites they had some of the first women artists as well like they weren't as prolific as like a lot of the male pre-Raphaelites like Waterhouse but that I think um yeah the time period that they were painting in like you did have like female artists kind of like coming into the picture for the first time and that's also really interesting and sometimes their paintings are <laughs> a little bit better or set of a slightly different tone that I like so yeah sometimes I just go on Wikipedia basically mm. and I just like click on things until I find something that I like I really find like the almost like relationship of mm-hmm. of history and thinking about things there because you're pulling from the art which is pulling from other stories which mm-hmm. are often in some cases going to be the same stories or texts mm-hmm. literary texts you're pulling from and mm-hmm. I guess yeah grabbing art in that sense it, it almost feels like to honor and obey is in some sense giving like a specific slice mm-hmm. of lots of different engagement with the same material yeah and I'm not saying that you know my game is maybe on the level as like the pre-Raphaelite <laughs> artists I am in, in terms of like you know cultural um you know cultural uh, importance maybe but yeah I, I do enjoy it. and I think with Arthuriana it just has, there have been certain time periods where everyone has just suddenly been fascinated with it and obsessed with it. And I think in the next, like, one or two years in RPGs, everyone's going to be doing Arthuriana. Yeah, I'm currently the top itch result for Arthurian with a project. Like, if you search tagged that, and I know I'm going to get beaten by that in, in years come by. It is, and that's fine, because that's exciting that everyone is yeah. engaging with that. I think the Green Knight was the first like early warning sign when that film yeah. came out. Um, not that it's a bad thing, it's just that this genre is becoming popular. And I think it's because nostalgia and uh, melancholy and being in a period of transition yeah. and themes of like alienation and confusion. Yeah, so obviously I had zach on a oh, yeah. i was gonna say previous episode but i'm aware i may not release these in the order mm. i record them so either in a previous episode or a future episode but um and she was talking about in- inevitable mm-hmm. a lot as well and it is interesting as well like that's obviously threaded through so much with sadness to honor and obey is a lot about isolation i think you're right in terms of like yes this genre feels like it's like there's maybe like a, a, a sort of a, a mushy amount of compost that is there and stuff's going to be sprouting through that. Mm-hmm. And I'm interested in seeing those different different takes and whether they mm-hmm. all will share that sense of melancholy. 
Yeah, and they don't have to, but a lot a lot of Arthuriana is it almost deliberately feel like uh, feels like a bit of a joke because like you're talking about all of these grand quests and all of these ideas of like honor and chivalry and you know all of these like idealist idealized things that everyone knows don't really exist and actually the knights even in like traditional like Lamont d'Arthur like the greatest knight of all time that's supposed to embody chivalry, Sir Lancelot, is just like fucking the king's wife. Yeah. Like. <laughs> He's out there fucking and sucking as that knightly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I mean, Pendragon having the has a has a cuckold reaction table. <laughs> um... <laughs> Please don't remove that in the next edition. Please. Pendragon 6th edition. All I want is for this table to be a D100. Yeah, expand it. <laughs> Make it bigger. <laughs> anyway, but like, yeah, I think um, I will be really interested to see how people draw from the source material. Because I think if you take Arthuriana as a genre and what you get is virtuous knights going on quests and 80 different honor mechanics then you've not really done your research. <laughs> um, not that I would criticise anyone else's like games for doing that, but mm. as some when a genre suddenly becomes like really popular to write in and everyone hops on that boat, you start to get takes and then the genre starts to mean something that it didn't mean at the start of that process. Yeah. I feel like offering at the moment, at least when I hear it, carries a certain sense of sadness and I guess a sort of you know um theoric quality to a lot of to any mm. kind of heroism and stuff and I suppose yeah as it expands that may become less true as more things are as it becomes D&Dified <laughs> the D&Dification of Arthuriana is not something that I'm looking forward to <laughs> but maybe it won't happen but you know the reason why it feels that way is because it it's, it's the exact same as the Greek epics mm. and the exact same as like reading a lot of Shakespeare. Like the thing that is the most engaging in these tales of like heroes is how they fail and how they're flawed. And that's what makes something epic. Um, really, it's not just about like people being chivalrous and being, yeah. being honorful. Or a sense of scale or whatever. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's about that kind of like that kind of interplay between like weakness and failure and like grand ideals um I, I, and yeah i mean you could just write arthuriana is just like greek tragedies if you're afraid of writing <laughs> greek tragedies because you don't want the classicists on your back <laughs> um and you don't want to be accused of ripping off Aegon. yeah there's there's i guess more more little gaps to escape into in terms of like this does not have a relationship to history that is like other things. So yeah. chill out. <laughs> yeah. And the art, and, and it's romantic as well. Mm. It's not just, uh, maybe people, maybe... Like we, a capital R romantic. We just think, yeah, exactly. But we just think Arthuriana maybe is sad because we are sad. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, possibly. We hear about, I don't know, 
heroism but other stuff more like stuff so fucking depressing <laughs> exactly that's your soundbite by the way that's what you should have played at the start of the episode <laughs> no but what i mean is like you know sometimes people would look back on it and they would think well isn't this a grand ideal like tristan and assault this beautiful romance story like crossing all this beautiful romeo and juliet story and yeah like there is a certain like romance and, and mystery and, and like little fun to it as well. And like fancy dresses and nice castles and big horses. So it has, it has that too. And that's what the pre-Raphaelites really liked. Uh, they liked the tragedy mixed in with the, uh, mm-hmm. the, the, the interesting romance and people getting up to all sorts of silly behaviors as well. Yeah. It's very interesting. <laughs> yeah. They, um, yeah, so that 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 was that was the art that I found for that. To go back to the previous question, but what I think is that you should just pick up based on how you envision the project to be. Have you ever gone? So you're saying like you know you are most you prefer and have, from experience to be commissioning after a game is written. Mm. Have you ever gone back and then altered a game into response to how art has come out, or have you, or has there often been like? a very almost sort of perfect union of your vision and what you envisioned and what the artist comes up with? Um, so sometimes I don't mind like a little bit of dissonance, but when I've worked with artists during the process of writing, um, I've always been a little bit like, I just kind of want to let you do what you want. Like, I don't want to necessarily give too much instruction because I'm aware that my eye for what's visually interesting is not like as trained. Yeah. Um, and it's the same with layout artists as well. I always just kind of like, yeah, go do what you want. <laughs> Bless you. <laughs> Bless you. Good luck. Um, but I, I do, I did get one, I suppose the only example of this I can find is when I was writing my Lancer adventure, uh, stolen crown um someone um who is an absolutely great artist hodag rpg if you like have them on twitter um they said oh yeah I'll, i just want to do some spot illustration illustrations for this for free because i find wow. this work really exciting and this idea in this genre really exciting so i basically said well like let me send you the files that i've got and you just do absolutely what you want with it like do some sketches and they did and i and i got it back and it was really interesting take on like the the setting that i was looking at building like it was there was you know big mechs with like viking helmets and there were like funny little like creatures like <laughs> there was a beast there called a glacier beast um yeah it's very it's frosty it's totally yeah it's frosty and, and snowy and and it's kind of like space vikings meet like uh a take on like the trauma of colonialism um awesome yeah that sounds like a bad word choice on my part i just mean that sounds like a very cool setting to explore and be it it is a it is a really cool setting if i do say so myself (laughs) um anyway and yeah like he came back with a lot of stuff that was so interesting that i did actually end up writing for it um and that was very inspiring like they created a whole like alphabet, like a futuristic oh alphabet. God. And then I was like, well, this is really cool because 
then I can introduce this whole segment of like language and how like the language has changed over like occupation and like how many people can actually read this language and then I invented some like hacking mechanics where like one of the difficulties with hacking some of the computers was that like you couldn't really speak the language uh, and it was a lot of fun so that that was I was really inspired by it yeah that makes sense as a direction angle that is so fascinating really informs the setting and also something you might not have come to without this alphabet being invented yeah I would not have come up with it and it was it was really fun to to work with them I'm, I'm hoping to work with them again um because uh this time I will pay you I promise I'll pay you this time <laughs> and he is signed to that now it's on mic <laughs> It is on mic, and I would have done it anyway. <laughs> yeah, obviously. Uh, yeah. I wasn't meaning to imply this was all a sting to get you to commit on mic. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know where Scandal. I'm going with this joke. I, is this a conspiracy? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, but that was the one time. Other than that, like, sometimes I take fine public domain art, and then I'm like, well... I guess I can't find the art that I really wanted because it doesn't exist, so I'll just use this one. Yeah, that makes sense. Like, yeah. we'll build around this or adapt to this. Yeah, yeah. I've done that with a lot of public domain stuff before, where I'm just like, oh, this this person, I guess, now has this weapon or whatever, or, oh, cool, this thing is now a talking skull. <laughs> nice. Yeah, you never not find a picture of a skull. Yes. Anything else can be a little bit harder, but you can find skulls and skeletons in whatever configuration yeah. you want. Makes sense, as long as there have been people. Yeah. Most of them have had skulls. <laughs> that is correct. <laughs> One last question I might ask. Um, who outside of games themselves has been most supportive of your work mainly? Um, outside of games design? Yeah. Yeah, so, I mean, I, when I was in Cambridge, like, I had a lot of friends that I played, like, games with, and as I've gone, like, more and more into games design, they've been, like, really excited and, and interested by it, um, and more and more, like, we don't just play D&D together, but we also like talk about games and, and games design. And I, I think it's really valuable to have that because obviously RPGs are still like a niche hobby. Hmm. And anyone who says that they're not is like living in a fantasy <laughs> land, I think. Yeah, we're really um, quibbling over the definition of niche or whatever. Yeah, because, you know, if I, I have like very close friends who just think it's really like weird that I how, what, a how do you time. explain game design to um people who are completely apart from that world oh i just show them my account spreadsheet and i say <laughs> hey i make some money <laughs> <laughs> going on the money that makes sense <laughs> yeah um no i i i mean people know what dnd is and i'll just say like yeah i've just been writing this game and then I'll explain like a little bit about like the genre or something that I'm excited about like um more I just more explain like it from a story perspective rather than from like a game that makes perspective. sense yeah but yeah I'm lucky enough to have like a group of, of friends who I did play RPGs with who understand like the world um like 
the world of RPGs um, and are excited that I'm a, I'm a game designer. And obviously uh, one of those people, Kristen, who I was playing with, got into like writing RPGs at the same time as I did. And then we have our press together now, 12 Pins Press. Yes. Um, and she illustrated Lichcraft. Oh, that's cool. She is just generally like a really fantastic and very inspirational game designer. That's really wonderful to have that kind of connection and collaboration and like linking. Yeah, and we were at uni together, so. Oh, is yeah. that how you first met? Yeah, yeah, there was like a university like role-playing game society. That... Ah, is that where you first got into RPGs or were you or were you into them and were like, cool, there's a society of people like me? What actually <laughs> happened is that, so I have a friend who was the president of the society um I didn't actually know that he was the president of society at the time but we would like get drunk together yeah um and then once I was talking about like a D&D game that I was running um and then like I think it was about like 3 a.m on a Friday night I got a message from him that was like please we're trying to run this a, a, a like adventurous league style event and all the dms have dropped out can you come on sunday <laughs> oh, i just i heard i heard you mention once that you might run games sometimes i really need you to do this <laughs> and, and that's how i that's kind of going to that's such a fun way to meet people yeah being an emergency call out <laughs> yeah exactly um and that was the start of a really great friendship as well like a proper friendship <laughs> that's really wonderful friends yeah. spring up in strange places uh we'll probably cause that thank you laurie for coming on would you like to say where people can find you on the internet yeah so if that entire ramble was not enough for you um and uh you made it to the end then you can find me on twitter if you if you want it's still there uh, <laughs> if it's still there at laurie underscore e e e triple e have you jumped to any of the replace no, no. is it so is it just twitter for you um you can find my itch page oh. uh lawrence o laurie o'connell at it it dot uh 12 and most importantly i have a newsletter yes i'm a subscriber yeah uh and that thank you for subscribing <laughs> and that is where um every month or so i'll just dump everything that's happening on you and you can have that without my political opinions <laughs> um don't sprinkle them over as a little bit of spice and the subscription link will probably be linked, so like the newsletter link. Yeah, me. I'll drop all of these links um, in a description, I assume. I'm doing all these recordings before I figured out podcast hosting or anything. Um, so uh, I'm like, I'll do, I'll do all of the things podcasts do. I just don't know what they are yet. That's good. So you can actually, uh, you can subscribe to my newsletter somewhere. <laughs> You can find it through my website, 12pinspress.com. Yeah. Thank you for coming. I, I've not figured out a sign-off for this, so I'm just trying out different ones as we go. So, I guess in the spirit of Danger Days, uh, that great big ball they call the sun, it'll eat you up. Until next time. <laughs>